Hey, this is Amar. Welcome to part two of episode 12 of the MSX podcast with Dr. Robinson. Hi, everyone. My name is Zach, and I'm a first-year medical student at the CUNY School of Medicine, and welcome to the MSX podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn from their insight and expertise. In this week's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Raymond Robinson, a medical student advisor at the CUNY School of Medicine in New York City, as well as a professor of health informatics at Northwestern University. Dr. Robinson is also the founder and CEO of the Regenerative Education Evolution Lab, where he and his team are passionate about evolving education by embedding the science of learning into technology. If the best learning happens by like finding problems with, within students' learnings and and diagnosing these problems with uh, interventions, why do you think Khan Academy, Udemy, Coursera, et cetera, like all of those platforms work? Yeah, so um, do they work? Or are they popular, right? So one of the things that I can tell you is that if you go and talk to the majority of leaders of most undergraduate medical schools, like the people that are the chair of the curriculum or, or those kinds of things. Um, and if they're truly honest with themselves, um, I went and spoke to my, you know, previous alma mater and, and talked to somebody there. And they basically say they, that students will succeed in spite of the faculty, not because of the faculty. And the reason why is because they're not really teaching. They're, they're, they're lecturing. And so it's really the student's self-regulated learning capabilities for them to get over step one. So for instance, oftentimes um, when I would get lectures, we would have these world-renowned lecturers come into Hopkins and give lectures. Do you think they're going to talk about stuff that's on step one, or do you think they're going to talk about stuff that's like right current on their bench research right now, and it's what they're passionate about and what they love to talk about and what's really interesting to them. And so then how does that help me with step one? So then what I need to do is when I have my dedicated period for step one, I need to then now spend that time studying something that's on step one. Yeah, I get this wonderful, very cool and interesting information that is where the field is going. But what if I'm a student who's struggling just to get over step one? How is that helping me now? Right? If I'm one of those students who was either gifted, like naturally just has that capability of passing step one and don't really have to study hard and all of that, then that's great because I can go off and I can do this fantastic, you know, contemplation of the future and, and thinking about all that stuff and and, and building the future of medicine and so on and so forth. And I don't have to worry about how I'm going to um, not be $200,000 in student loan debt, which is the average student loan debt for medical students now. The AAMC just published that. And so um, I, I, because I, I'm this wonderful thinker and I'm going to pass step one, but that's not true for everybody. And it wasn't, it wasn't true for me. I had a poor MCAT score. So guess what? I had a poor step one score and I had a poor step two score. 
It's just the way it goes. If you're a good standardized test taker, you're most likely going to be a good standardized test taker. But are we trying to create good standardized test takers? Or are we trying to create a humanistic physician that's actually going to be a part of a system that's going to change the way that we actually interact with the human being and be a holistic way of helping people? Yeah. So if like step one doesn't really have a great correlation with being a good doctor, what do you think would and why wouldn't it lead to like another standardized test? Or maybe how would you make sure it doesn't lead to another standardized test? Yeah. So evidence is pretty clear. Step one does not have a whole lot of correlation with how good of an intern you're going to be. It just doesn't. There are plenty of studies that are published that actually say uh, physicians will try to remember what was in the Krebs cycle or the electron transport chain or enzyme kinetics or any of that basic science stuff. And they say it's absolutely useless across the board for them on their daily practice of medicine. It's just the way it is. But we have a lot of people that have basic science degrees that want to feel the importance of what they do. And they've influenced that step one to allow it to be quite important. And because of the way our timing of our system is, step one has been the exam that's available at the time that residency directors can use as some kind of a threshold marker. So for instance, I'm gonna kind of blow this out of proportion, but if you can imagine you're a residency director and you have 10 spots in your residency, but you have a thousand people applying for them. You can't interview a thousand people. And the last thing you want in your residency is to have anybody failing the exams while they're in residency. So if you're a good standardized test taker, guess what? You're going to be a good standardized test taker. So why don't I just use the available exam score that's there? And I'm going to say anybody below this threshold, I'm not even going to interview. Now I've been able to cut it down to 400 people. And that's kind of the system that we've had. And so what we've done now is we've moved away from step one, having a scaled score. It's now going back to pass-fail. No, let me say that again. It's going back to pass-fail. It was previously pass-fail. But because of how the system changed and the importance of the NBME, which is actually not run by physicians, it's actually run by psychometricians, just by the way. So with it going back to pass-fail, we're starting that change that system. And so a different kind of exam that looks more at what is the next best treatment, prognosis, diagnosis, treatment kind of characteristics, which is step two CK, is now going to be the next step one. So they're going to use step two CK score, just like they did with step one, the, the residency program directors. The problem is, is that you take step two CK later on in your third year, and by the time you get the score back, you don't have a lot of time for ERAS applications, which also means you kind of need to know a little bit earlier or a lot earlier what you want to go into because you got to try to front load all your research. You got to try to front load all the experiences that you want so that you can boost up your ERAS application. So 
These decisions are not based from my perspective, are not based on what's best for the student. All of these decisions are based on the system that currently exists for medical students, which is a major problem, which tells me that the system needs to be overhauled. But the problem is, is there are so many of these insurmountable barriers involved, like the residency program directors. If you're a residency program director, you are way overworked. You have to do, you're probably academic, so you got to publish, you got to get research dollars, you got to do clinical medicine, and you got to run a, um, a residency, right? So what do you do in that situation? You're just oftentimes trying to do the best you can to teach the best way you can and trying to tread water at the same time, right? And so this system really needs um, uh, educators, not subject matter experts, but people that understand the literature and understand how to dive in and do quantitative and qualitative research to be able to rebuild the system. I just don't see it happening very soon, um, but I would love to see it happen. Yeah, like along those lines, you know, you mentioned that the system is broken, you know, just playing out a pipe dream, uh, this scenario, like what do you envision ideally of how med school education could be optimized from like the NBME level all the way down to individual professors teaching students? Wow. Obviously, this is just my opinion. You know this, right? So, <laughs> um, so first off, the NBME needs to be run by physicians, right? Um, number one, physicians are not great at policing their own profession. Um, we are oftentimes so um, busy with trying to make money, trying to keep our head, trying to pay our loans back, trying to move forward, trying to have a family life. I mean, trying to take care of patients, trying to be holistic, trying, you know, all of that stuff that, that things start to move forward without us. And we don't, we don't put skin in the game. The NBME is one of these things. Um, other examples are nurse anesthetists. Not that they're bad, not that we don't need them. Absolutely, we need them. We need allied health pro professionals. But, but I'm just saying that the reason why they're there is because physicians aren't policing their own profession. So PAs, NPs, nurse anesthetists, all of these came out because we're not doing the job. We're not filling those gaps. And so the NBME is one of those gaps. Um, I, I don't know in law school, how many non-lawyers teach lawyers? I don't know the numbers on that. Are there a bunch of PhDs teaching lawyers in law school? Or are they mostly lawyers teaching lawyers in law school? I don't know. So what I do know is that in the 1960s, um, we had this thing called molecular biology start to take off. And that's where everything really changed in medicine. The physicians that were oftentimes doing bench research and then taking it to the bedside and then from the bedside back to the bench could no longer keep up with molecular biology. It started to go and move so fast that 
um, the physicians would have to stop doing as much clinical medicine to be able to stay on top of everything. They also started to figure out that, that um, the business side of medicine started to kick in as well, right? So the language of medicine started to change in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, where they're starting now to talk about RVUs, or they're starting to talk about throughput, or they're starting to talk about the using business terminology on the wards in order to be able to take care of patients. That wasn't the case before, right? It's this whole movement from a fee for service to um, um, value-based care. But we're now, we're now um, being looked at for quality of the care that we give to patients, right? And so um, that is drive, the driving force. So if you don't do certain things, you don't get paid. Or if you don't do certain things, you can even get penalized, right? And so these are the things that physicians are being measured by um, nowadays. This whole idea of, of what medical education could look like is number one, it needs to be data-driven. Most of medical education is, it's starting to change, but it's not there yet. We don't even have the platforms to be able to collect the right data, right? So in, in medical school or in, um, in hospitals, we have these electronic health records. Now, most physicians have a, a love-hate relationship with them because they have to go through 17,000 clicks a day in order to be able to get their job done every day. Um, you know, but on, on some level, we're now collecting all that data. That data is available. And at some point, we're going to be able to make use of it. There are little spurts here of us being able to make use of it. Um, we don't have a big data solution yet to be able to make use of that data, but, but we don't have that in education. We don't have an electronic health record in education. And that's kind of the new idea of my new startup is, is trying to make a platform that is readily available that will drive data-driven decision-making in education. So I think once we can start making data available, um, the only problem is, is that it's, Education is much more complicated, right? Because we don't, what is the equivalent of a blood pressure and a heart rate on a student in medical school, right? So in medicine, we have a heart rate, we have a blood pressure, we have uh, lab values, right? We have a CBC, we have all of these more discrete lab values or, or, or numerical values that we can measure that get better or get worse. Now, we can also argue the sensitivity and specificity of those numbers because those numbers can change based on how accurate the test is that you're giving them. Um, but in education, what's the surrogate value of a blood pressure? How do we know a, a, a patient's blood pressure got corrected when we're doing education? Like for instance, is it just multiple choice questions? If they get an increasing number of multiple choice questions, is that the way we go? Is that the equivalent of a better, a, a lower heart rate and they're doing better now because they got higher exam scores, right? So there, we have to look at it, education's much messier. And so you have to really understand that 
you're really working in a social environment that you're you're not looking at this from a positivistic, which means that there's only one single reality um, way of looking at things. And we're really looking at this as that there's multiple realities and that it depends, right? And so um, I think until we can start collecting data and, and have educators that can use the data and use that data within the same realm of the academic literature, um, I think we have a lot of work to do. We have a long way to go before we can even try to optimize anything. Because number one, um, in order for you to be able to optimize something, you have to have a measuring point from where you began. You have to have baseline data. So then that when you do something, you can then look back and say, has it improved? I also um, was wondering specifically with um, just the setup of how med school traditionally is where you have typically two preclinical years, then uh, two years in the clinic. Um, I was curious what you thought about that. If that is some type of dogma that could be improved or optimized in any kind of way, or do you think that it serves a purpose in you know preparing a med student in an appropriate type of way? So Charles Flexner basically in, in, in the early 1900s, I think it was 1908 and 1909, uh, published a paper and looked at um, tens of medical schools uh, in Canada and the US. And at the time um, there were, medical schools were kind of, it was kind of like the wild west. They, they didn't exist the way you think today. There were medical schools that were privately owned um, that basically, you would just shadow a physician and pay them money. And then when you got done with it, you had the ability to hang, your, hang up your shingle and you were now a physician. Um, and that often meant that it wasn't primary care type stuff. It was mostly surgical type interventions. Um, and that often came out of um, butchery. That actually, actually came out of, that's why, um, barbers and stuff like that have the pole that's red, white, and blue. And there's a whole kind of story behind that. But anyway, the Flexner report um, was kind of one of the, the first really big report where he described that he wanted um, or he thought the best idea was for physicians to go to a medical school that was academically inclined, was connected to a hospital where they would do bench research and then carry that bench research into the hospital or the clinic and then back to the bench again and, um, and, um, and how he envisioned that was that you would do two years of basic science research and then two years of the clinical research situated in the hospitals or in clinics. And, um, and I think that worked very well for a very long time. Um, but like I said, when molecular medicine kicked in, things started to change. So in the 1960s, 70s, molecular medicine kicked in, um, that started to begin, begin the breakdown of, of physicians being able to do bench research and transitioning that to the 
clinical environment and then back to the to the bench again because um, things were moving faster than most clinicians could actually keep up with. Um, there are some that still do it, but it's not the majority anymore. Um, and so I, I think that there are some schools. Um, I know Penn State is is has an interesting, really interesting program. I know UC Davis has one of these programs. There's a couple other programs that are out there that are actually looking at. Um, uh, I know one of I I know Penn State's um, uh, program probably a little bit more well than I do others, but um, uh, they start in the clinic in day one. And so they start shadowing people when they don't even know how to do an H and P. And obviously they aren't just let loose on, on patients because they wouldn't even know how to palpate or, or, or how to ask an appropriate history. Um, but they're, they're able to shadow. And what they're finding from some of these programs is as they're collecting data, they're finding from their student population that are starting these programs, how they could be done, how, how medical education could be done differently. Because the students that are entering medical schools now are different than the schools that entered the medical schools in the 1900s, early 1900s, right? And so why are we still using the two by two system when the people that are entering medical schools are completely different thinkers? They have a very different perspective. Even when you're looking at the, the cultural and ethnical diversity of the student population, it's completely different. So what we need to do is we need to be collecting data on these students that are starting these schools so that we can build a system that works for the people that are entering these schools now. Um, I, I don't think that that's happening because everybody's just so focused on trying to, trying to make it work right with what they got right now. So there are some schools that are doing some of this, um, but it is, it is slow slow, slow, slow work. You know, earlier on, you talked about, you know, your love for learning and mm. also your love for like the entrepreneurial mindset. And, and a lot of the times I hear like the skills of an academic and the skills of an entrepreneur, like, like oil and water. So mm. it, was, it was really interesting to hear that. Um, how did your like love for both the academic world and entrepreneurship um, kind of add to your unique contributions um, in entrepreneurship and now, and also going into your, your second startup? Well, I, my passion is teaching medical students and I can't really do that unless I'm a part of a medical school. <laughs> so um, I've, I've had to kind of find a way to allow both worlds to collide. Um, and still try to work within um, some of the limitations and challenges that I come across in academia, which is, um, is what I call death by committee. So um, most universities and medical schools, uh, you know, a good friend of mine who's a provost of a university says that you're you're more likely to move a graveyard than you are to move to move a university in a major direction, and um, 
And that's because they work in these in these death by committees, these silos, these these academic limitations that don't that that keep the narrative um, the same. Um, major change does not often happen well in a university um, or in medical schools. Um, and so, and 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 that also means that they're often. Oh God, this will be sound bad, but I, I don't mean this in, in, in a negative way. I just mean it in, in a way for us to try to look at it and try to grow from it. But that also means that we often hire folks that are more comfortable with that way of doing things. They would prefer things to stay the norm rather than make big, significant sweeping changes that could possibly disrupt and create a new system that could be helpful. Um, they often are are folks that that are uncomfortable working in that environment. Um, and so that I think is probably some of the crux of why it's oil and water between startup communities and, and academia. I think some universities do this a little better. Um, for instance, I think Stanford has a pretty good grasp on how to do some of this because they're so close to the massive startup communities. So they've been able to kind of work much um, more intricately with this environment because so many of their students are embedded into that startup with Silicon Valley, that whole startup community. Um, but for the, for the most part, I think most universities um, um, struggle with this because um, they're full of people that are not as comfortable with change. Um, and, and the startup community is all about change. It's about constantly pivoting in order to find what is going to make things work correctly. And I think one of the things that we could do, back to your pre one of your previous co uh, questions, was to start to incorporate um, becoming more comfortable with change, hiring people that are more comfortable with change. Hiring people that embrace it, allow it to happen, because I think it's really the only way that we're really going to excel and change a system that's working, going to work for the students that are coming into medical schools nowadays. Yeah, and as we're wrapping up uh, this episode, we we're just wondering if you had any, uh, you know, parting wisdom for any young professionals or people trying to, you know, make a big change, you know, follow their dream. Yeah, I guess you got to believe in yourself. Um, but I don't, I know that this, that this doesn't come out of thin air. Find a champion, uh, find your tribe, find, um, find uh, a mentor, um, find somebody who um, can help you believe in you um, and don't ever give up. Um, I think, you know, if, if, you, if you truly want something, um, there are limitations, obviously, like I can never be the president of the United States. That's not ever going to happen. Um, thank God I don't want to be that. Um, but there are things within reality, um, realistic expectations that, that you can achieve. 
And I think um, um, surrounding yourself with, with people that can champion, um, can champion your ideas is, is it, it's changed my life. Um, I've been able to, to believe in me only because other people believed in me when I didn't have that belief. Um, and, and it's kind of like I faked it until I made it. And now I have enough belief that I don't really have those limitations anymore. 